This is episode 175 of That Shakespeare Life. If you like the history you're learning here on our show and want to go even further into the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member at That Shakespeare Life. Members get exclusive content like video versions of the podcast, animated plays, bonus interviews, activity kits, and more. Become a member today and cook, play, and craft your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up at CassidyCash.com member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hello, I'm Sir Stanley Wells. I'm Honorary President of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Another great method to studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. We don't know quite what Shakespeare's role in the the coronation celebrations was. It was a slightly weird event. So James I came to the throne in March 1603 when Elizabeth I died. But this will sound familiar. There was a pandemic at the time. Um, There was a huge outbreak of plague in England that particularly affected London. And so James's coronation was postponed for nearly a year. And he didn't make his ceremonial entry into London. He didn't have his coronation until the 15th of March, 1604. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In 1603, as King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England following the death of Elizabeth I, one of the people James tapped to walk in his coronation parade was William Shakespeare, along with the entire Lord Chamberlain's men company who received the official patronage of James I to become the king's men. The new title and status brought big changes to performance of plays, the subject matter selected for playwriting, and gave William Shakespeare the position in society he had long sought after. Our guest this week, Lucy Munro, is here to share her research into the King's Mend and what the shift from Elizabethan into Jacobean England brought about for Shakespeare. Lucy Munro is Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Literature at King's College London. She teaches, researches, and writes on the plays and poetry of Shakespeare and his contemporaries, theater history, histories of gender, and childhood. Her publications include three books, Children of the Queen's Revels, a Jacobean Theater History, Archaic Style in English Literature, 1590 to 1674, and Shakespeare in Theater, The King's Men, which she joins us to talk about today. She has also written editions of plays such as Shakespeare and Wilkins' Pericles, Fletcher's The Tamer Tamed, Richard Brome's The Demoiselle, and The Queen and Concubine along with several others. Her edition of Shirley's The Gentleman of Venice is forthcoming in the complete works of James Shirley in summer of 2021. Her most recent essays include studies of Blackfriars Playhouse and English Literary Renaissance and Shakespeare Quarterly. She's a contributor to two collaborative research projects before Shakespeare and Engendering the Stage, links to which we will provide in the show notes for today's episode so you can explore those. Hello, Lucy. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's really good to be here. Did William Shakespeare himself walk in the coronation parade for James I? 
So we don't know quite what Shakespeare's role in the the coronation celebrations was. It was a slightly weird event. So James I came to the throne in March 1603 when Elizabeth I died. But this will sound familiar. There was a pandemic at the time. Um, There was a huge outbreak of plague in England that particularly affected London. And so James's coronation was postponed for nearly a year. And he didn't make his ceremonial entry into London. He didn't have his coronation until the 15th of March, 1604. So I said nearly a year later. And this meant that by the time of the coronation, the patronage of the playing companies had been thoroughly overhauled. So the Chamberlain's men had become the King's men, the Admiral's men had become Prince Henry's men, and Worcester's men had become Queen Anna's men. And I think it might have been partly as a result of this that among the group of you know, over a thousand royal servants are the King's men, Prince Henry's men, and Queen Anna's men. So included as part of the, the households of, of these members of the royal family. And 10 of the, well, nine of the king's men, nine of Prince Henry's men, and 10 of Queen Anna's men are issued with four and a half yards of red cloth. And for people who work in metric systems, that's just over four meters of red cloth. This was what was given to the slightly lowest status royal servants. The highest status royal servants were given scarlet cloth. Um, so again, four and a half yards. And the idea is that this would be used to make to make livery. So to make clothing that kind of marked you out as being being a royal servant. And we don't know if this meant that they walked in the coronation procession or whether they stood at kind of strategic points or whether they were, you know, part of this this amassing of the royal household to show how how extensive and, and impressive it was. I was looking over the list of payments earlier, and it's noticeable that the the king's players, and it says players in big letters in the margin, um, appear after the messengers, the master of the hounds, and the royal falconers. So it's possible that the players weren't that prominent um, and probably weren't that close to the king. I think the king's men would have been probably closest to the king when they performed for him. Was that all there was to officially patronizing the Lord Chamberlain's men and creating the King's men was for the King to just declare these are my playing company now? Or was there some other ceremony to induct them into the King's service? So what they're effectively issued with is is a kind of paper declaration or a sort of parchment declaration in the shape of royal patent. Um, And this is something they can take. They can take a copy of it with them when they travel. And it marks them as being the king's servants. And in the words of the patent itself, it licenses and authorizes them to exercise the art and faculty of playing comedies, tragedies, histories, interludes, morals, pastorals, stage plays, and such others. And this is, it goes through quite a labyrinthine process in the court bureaucracy. So there's, there seems to be an initial request from the king's men to be made into the king's men to be given royal patronage. And then it kind of moves through various processes going through the signet office and various other offices being signed off at each stage until the patent itself is finally issued. And the king's men actually paid to have it entered into the patent role. So you we can actually trace it through almost all of the stages it went through. But as far as we know, there's no actual ceremony. He doesn't actually say at some point, you know, you are now the king's men. It's more this 
this piece of bureaucracy really that gives the company a piece of a piece of paper or a piece of parchment that they can can wave around and say, you know, we're royal servants, you should let us perform here. William Shakespeare was the lead dramatist in The King's Men, but did that position establish him as the point of contact for the company under James I? If James I wanted to give orders to The King's Men or request a particular play, provide feedback and things like that, did he have to talk to William Shakespeare or was it someone else? Seems to be somebody else most of the time. So Shakespeare's does appear in the court records. So he's alongside um, Richard Burbage and William Kemp as the payee for a set of court performances in the Christmas season of 1594 to 95. But this is the only time when he appears in that, in that kind of capacity. And um, The re- regular liaison person from the mid-1590s onwards is John Hemmings. And he seems to hold that role right the way through until the the early 1630s when he dies. And he's sometimes referred to by scholars as being the kind of business manager of the King's Men. And, and we also see him in some of the, the bits of the records of the Master of the Revels that survive. So, and there'll be notes that, you know, the Master of the Revels spoke to Hemmings or that Hemmings promised something or that Hemmings delivered a gift on behalf of the King's Men. But even Hemmings wouldn't have been talking directly to, to James. He'd have been liaising with the Master of the Revels. So first Edward Tilney and then George Buck. And the Master of the Revels is has two really important roles. He's the person who organises all of the court performances, but he's also the person who authorises playing companies. So he has some influence in terms of of whether patents are issued, but he's also the person who censors plays. So if you want to put on a play, you have to get it passed um, first Tilney and then Buck before you're allowed to. And and a couple of manuscripts survive with the Master of the Revels licence on them. Although sadly, not not any plays by Shakespeare. Did Shakespeare's playing company, now the King's Men, continue staging performances at the Globe or other performance venues around England? Or were they exclusively doing court performances once they were patronised? They carried on performing at the Globe and the Blackfriars and other venues when they were on tour. And actually, most of their income would have come from these, these public performances. They seem usually to have got £10 for each court performance. And this is quite a substantial sum. But we can compare it with a bit of what we know about the takings from playhouses. So sadly, we don't have, you know, a kind of account book for any of the playhouses that tells us precisely what the overall profits were for particular performances. But we do know what cut Philip Henslow, who ran the Rose Playhouse, was making at certain points in the um, 1590s and early 1600s. So for instance, we know that for a performance of a play that's probably one of Shakespeare's Henry VI plays in 1592 at the Globe, Henslow gets £3, 16 shillings and eightpence. And that's only a portion of what was made that day at the performance as a whole. So the sums they're making in the playhouses are pretty substantial. But there is a point when the King's Men are more dependent on court performances and royal patronage. And that is during plague times when the playhouses are closed. And we have records of James and later King Charles giving money to the King's Men to support them, you know, a form of furlough payment in some ways um, during the point, the times when the playhouses are closed, officially to enable them to rehearse and to prepare for court performances. So there are points in, in particularly in the early 1600s where 
the king's men would have been much more dependent on those court performances for their income. Lucy writes that Shakespeare wrote several of his plays with the king's men in mind. Lucy, how was this perspective different now that the king's men were officially patronized by the king? Had Shakespeare not always been writing his specific playing company as the intended performance group? Absolutely, yes. And I think a, a playwright like Shakespeare, who was an actor as well as a playwright, is, is particularly embedded you know, amongst the people who are performing his plays. And up until at least the early 1600s was probably taking a number of roles in them himself. I think what happens in in 1603 is that there's a shift in the composition of the company. So writing for the King's Men is slightly different than writing from the Chamberlain's Men, just because you've got a different set of actors that you're writing for. And it's not just that particular boy actors had, had graduated from female roles. It's that there's a couple of deaths of important performers among the king's men. So um, Thomas Pope in 1603, William Kemp seems to have left a few years before that. And, and a really important change in 1603 is that an actor called John Lowen becomes part of the company. And he seems to be the first actor to play Iago. He is the first actor to play Bossola in The Duchess of Malfi. Seems to have been this incredibly powerful actor with a, a very imposing kind of stage presence. And there are ways in which Shakespeare's writing may well be shifting to accommodate having an actor like Lowen that he can write for. Um, and Lowen being, Lowen probably took on some of the roles of, of Thomas Pope, who died in 1603, but would have been, or seems to have been a different kind of performer. Lucy writes that the King's Men were the first group to revive his plays and the first to have them revised either by Shakespeare himself or by other dramatists after his retirement, end quote. Lucy, what examples do we have of the King's Men revising Shakespeare's works? And are there significant changes that might have been aimed at James specifically? So there are a couple of plays that aren't printed until 1623. They're not printed until the first folio edition, but which seem to have had revisions along the way quite probably post-dating Shakespeare's death. So the most famous of these is Macbeth, which seems to be revised by Thomas Middleton in the mid-1610s, probably around 1615. And one of the things that Middleton does is he um, amplifies the role of the witches in the play, which is an aspect of Macbeth that does seem to be be calculated to appear to, to appeal to James himself. And James's attitudes to witchcraft actually seem to to shift kind of over his lifetime. Probably not surprisingly, he seems to be more credulous at certain points than others. By the 16 teens, he seems to be involved in in actually kind of inquiring about witchcraft cases. And actually where he seems to be most credulous is, is when he thinks that the witchcraft is affecting him personally. So he's very exercised in the 1590s by the accusations of witchcraft around his marriage to, to Anne of Denmark, for instance. But one of the things that Middleton does, or seems to do in Macbeth, is to insert some extra witch scenes and to bring in Hecate and to, to bring in some extra song and just to kind of revamp the play a bit for the mid-16-teens 16, 16 in ways that also wouldn't have hurt it in terms of getting it further, further court performances. Another play that seems to be revised is, is Measure for Measure, and that's probably in the early 1620s. There's quite a powerful theory that the original play had an Italian setting and that it's relocated to Vienna in the early 1620s. 
near the start of the Thirty Years' War, when Vienna is a, a much more resonant location than it would have been 20 years earlier. Shakespeare died about halfway through the tenure of the King's Men, passing away in 1616, about nine years before the death of James I in 1625. Lucy, would Shakespeare have been personally involved in some of the revisions to his work, or did all of them happen posthumously? I think that a number of them happened during during his life. It's difficult to pin down precisely the dates of revisions, but the nature of the revisions to plays like King Lear, Othello, Hamlet suggest quite strongly that Shakespeare was involved in them. In King Lear particularly, there have been attempts to, to pin down the point at which the revisions might have taken place. And there's aspects of the, the folio version of King Lear, which seem to be in dialogue with the the run of, of tragicomic plays, sometimes known as romances, that Shakespeare's writing from about 1609 onwards. So it's sometimes thought that King Lear was was revised revised at that point in time around 1610, 1611 by Shakespeare himself. And the arguments kind of go in, in different directions. So I think people who approve of certain changes are more likely to say that they're by Shakespeare. People who disapprove of certain changes are more likely to say, well, these can't have been by Shakespeare. Sure. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. An example of this might be the um, the fact that the Howell occasions soliloquy in Hamlet doesn't appear in the folio version. And, and for some scholars, you know, this is a mark of, of Shakespeare's kind of control of the text that he's able to take out a soliloquy. For others, it's a sign that he couldn't possibly have been responsible for it, because why would he take out a soliloquy? I certainly have. I will not take sides on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what political pressures were in place under James that might not have been there under Elizabeth to motivate making these revisions? There are certain political changes. So scholars have sometimes looked at Hamlet as an example. You know, Denmark becomes a much more sort of, in some ways, risky political subject once the Queen consort is Anna of Denmark, for instance. And there are, I think, ever-increasing pressures on religious conformity under James, particularly after the gunpowder plot. Um, There's a moment in 1603 when people think or hope that, that James might have a more more open and more tolerant kind of approach to religion than Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had been kind of, I think, gradually boxed in by, by things like being excommunicated by the Pope. And James didn't have that baggage. But the problem is that the gunpowder plot then means that, that things are closed down again and things become very fraught, for, particularly for Catholics under James at this point. And so you have things like the Oath of Allegiance you have the gunpowder references in Macbeth. And there are signs, I think, of, of theatrical censorship being loosened or tightened at certain points. The Kingsmen themselves in 1603 perform a play called The Tragedy of Gowrie, which seems to be representing an earlier plot against James. And there are, the only thing we know about this play is that it was staged at the Globe and that there were rumours that it was going to be suppressed because it was representing living people and possibly even representing James himself. And so maybe the King's men thought at that point, oh, you know, we're going to do this nice flattering play about King James. Censorship might be opening up. We might be able to do this. And then found out that no, they couldn't. And then after that, I'm more careful. So of course, Macbeth is dealing with the political situation immediately after the gunpowder plot. King Lear is dealing with 
the union or the dissolution of the kingdoms, but they're both doing so in, in historical settings, which always seems to make things safer in the early modern period. So what changed for the life of William Shakespeare with this new appointment? Was he making more money? Did he have a higher status in society? How was the day-to-day life of William Shakespeare impacted by being a part of a company that's officially patronized by the king? Well, he would have had a greater security and, and a greater financial security. Royal patronage gives you this and the patronage of the king in particular. And so we can see this when the king's men are issued with, with funding to help support them during play closures for example. And it's noticeable that the King's Men are the one company that that never dissolves in the period between the accession of James I and the outbreak of the Civil War. They continue right the way through and all of the other companies kind of dissolve or, or, or just face financial crisis at certain points. And the King's Men do face significant challenges at certain points, but they, they have a secure enough status that they endure. Shakespeare himself, he would have gained the status of a royal servant, which might have meant a lot to him or might have meant very little to him. We don't entirely know. You know, we know that Shakespeare had a coat of arms drawn up. So there were clearly aspects of, of status that he that he cared about. But I don't know how much he would have enjoyed the kind of snob value of being, you know, one of his majesty's servants. His fellow actor, or well, an actor who joined the King's Men probably around the time when Shakespeare retired, um, called John Shank, a great comic actor. When he died in the 1630s, he actually described himself in his will as um, a citizen and weaver and, and one of his majesty's servants. But Shakespeare doesn't do that in his will. He's gentleman in his will. And it's maybe partly that the status of actors has shifted a bit in that couple of decades between the death of Shakespeare and the death of, of John Shank. But yeah, he may have, have kind of got a certain kind of status lift from being a royal servant. There might also have been practical benefits that it, it sometimes seems to have given you a bit of legal protection. And there are various records in the the Lord Chamberlain's records a bit later, so for the 1630s, of, of actors being protected from prosecution at various points because they're members of the King's Men. So there's there's a kind of security all round that that status might give you. I've wondered if that was one reason that Shakespeare didn't end up in more trouble after his extended family was implicated in the gunpowder plot, if if this role in the playing company might have insulated him somewhat. But Yeah, I think it, it doesn't hurt to have court connections in this period. <laughs> it's all about who you know. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> we know that, the, that after the death of Richard Burbage, William Pembroke wrote about missing his old acquaintance, demonstrating that a loss was felt there with the passing of Burbage and the change of the guard in terms of who was now playing these iconic roles like Hamlet and King Lear. Lucy, when Shakespeare died in 1616, was there a similar loss felt across the company or can we see a noticeable change in how the plays were written or performed post-Shakespeare that might reveal something about Shakespeare's reputation or place within the company? In some ways, the most remarkable testaments to Shakespeare's place in The King's Men is the fact that they carry on performing his plays right the way through to the 1640s. They remain a really central and important part of that repertory. And of course, that's not an entirely sentimental thing. It's because these plays are, are profitable. But there is a sense that The King's Men kind of value having this, this memory of Shakespeare with them. And I think in some ways, the the greatest 
kind of monument that the company produced to Shakespeare is the first folio. And they were probably planning this from the late 1610s. It's not unlikely that Richard Burbage was involved in some of the early planning, although he died in 1619 and so wasn't part of it. But when the folio eventually appears, it has these, these dual prefaces signed by John Hemmings and Henry Condell. It has the list of the principal actors in the plays. Um, you know, in some ways it is the, the company's kind of memorial. And it's telling that they involve people like Ben Johnson in writing the, the dedicatory verses, writing the elegies that, that preface the, the collection. The other thing that's quite striking is, is how many of the King's men had sons called William. And yes, of course, William's, exactly. of course William's, William's a really common name in this period, but Hemmings, Condal, Burbage, the three men who are named in Shakespeare's will, or three members of the King's men who are named in Shakespeare's will, all had sons called William. And William Burbage, Richard's son, was actually born not long after Shakespeare's death in 1616, and, and it's quite likely to have been named after him. So you have these kind of Williams going into the next, the next kind of generation. Well, I know we would love to explore the history of the Kingsman and all of these actors and shareholders in this company, along with Shakespeare, further. What are some books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? So I would really recommend the the website, um, Shakespeare Documented, which the Folger Shakespeare Library and a group of collaborators have put together. It has a whole section on Shakespeare's company. Other than that, I think there's a there's been a really great run of books in the last 20 years or so that have to do with with Shakespeare and the King's Men and the playhouses that they used. So I'd look particularly to things like Andrew Gurr's book, um, The Shakespeare Company. And of course, Andrew Gurr was this, this really major figure in, in writing accessible and, and really readable books about early modern theatre history. Um, there's also a book by Bart Van Ness, Shakespeare and Company, there's a recent book by Richard Dutton on the history of, of sort of Shakespeare's involvement with the theatre industry, um, which is a brilliant overview and has lovely kind of insight kind of points where he digs into sort of issues in general. I mean, like like who were the gatherers at playhouses who took the money and, and these kinds of questions. And then I also really like Sarah Dustiger's book, Shakespeare's Two Playhouses, which thinks about the King's Men across the globe and the Blackfriars. These are excellent resources for sure. And we've had a couple of these authors on our show here at That Shakespeare Life. So we'll link you both to their books and to their episodes so you can learn more. So be sure to stop by the show notes to find those. Lucy, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. And because you are a repeat guest here on the show, you are allowed to choose a different selection for your desert island book, if you prefer. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a choice each time I come on. <laughs> it's, you know, I might not get to take them all with me, but at least I get the choice between. Yes, you'll have a library um, on your deserted island. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about this earlier, and um, c- could I have a manuscript? Could I have the manuscript of so, a Kingsman yes. play? So there's a manuscript that survives for Philip Massinger's play, Believe As You List. Um, it's in the British Library, so I might need to, to kind of sneak in and get access before I go to my desert island. And it's it's a manuscript that was used in the Playhouse. So it has notes on it of when particular actors needed props. It has a list at the end of, of kind of hand props that the actors would have had. But it's also 
it's a really fascinating play because Massinger originally wrote it about the um, deposed king of Portugal, Sebastian, who was supposed to have died at the Battle of Alcazar and then and then kind of supposed to have come back kind of years later to try and regain his throne. And Massinger writes this play for the king's men, submits it to the master of the revels, who says, no, this is full of dangerous matter, is the term that he uses. And yes. he says, no, you can't do it. But what Massinger does is he goes away and he, he basically gives it a new location and time period. So he puts it back into the classical past. He picks figures from the classical past that have situations or names that fit, names that even have the same number of, of, of syllables and the same scansion. So he can just reinsert them. And he basically just tweaks it. So King Sebastian becomes King Antiochus. And there are some points in the manuscript where you can see that the scribe has copied out Sebastian and has then crossed it out and put Antiochus in. <laughs> um, so it's this lovely palimpsesty thing. Oh, I, I would like that. Yes, I think that was a perfect choice for your Desert Island, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I'm part of a big collaborative project called Engendering the Stage, which is a partnership between a couple of universities in the UK and um, a master university um, in Canada. And then alongside that, I'm also doing some editing. So I'm editing a play called The Insatiate Countess, which is a, a fabulous title, which seems to have been originally written by John Marston and then revised by William Buxton and Lewis Mackin. And it's a glorious mess of a thing. It was really badly printed. It seems to have been sort of jumbled together for the press from some really scrappy manuscripts. The characters have different names at different points. So one of the first things you do if you edit it is you, you need to decide which set of names you're going to use. And there are some points where it looks like the um, in the printing house, somebody was reading the text to the compositor who was putting all the letters in place um, before it was printed. And there's one line that the sense of it suggests should be the box unto Pandora given. So you know, thinking about classical mythology and the line in the printed play, it says the pox is unto pandas <laughs> given. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to get my head around at the moment is this, this absolutely weird play. Well, you have your work cut out for you for sure. And not a lacking in laughter as you go. So that's always a good project. Thank you so much, Lucy Monroe, for being here and sharing with us the history of the King's Men. It's been a delight having you back here on the show. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Be sure to stop by the show notes for our episode today, as that's the best place to start when you want to dive even further into the history you learned about today. You can connect with Lucy, explore the Engendering the Stage project she's part of, as well as links to Shakespeare Documented and some of the real manuscripts that demonstrate what we're talking about today. Find links to these and all the resources we mentioned today at castycash.com slash episode 175. That's castycash.com slash EP 175. Don't forget, there's a video version of our show today available inside the members area of That Shakespeare Life. The video version lets you join us at the table with our guest and features archival images, woodcuts, and other visual material to go along with the interview so you can see the history right as we're discussing it on the show. Along with video versions of the podcast, members are our VIPs around here, which means you get our very best content, including digital resources like worksheets and historical maps, along with special member perks like the opportunity to participate 
in the show by submitting questions for upcoming guests and all members get a 20% discount on everything in our online store. Explore all the benefits of being a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.